your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil and when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom she took some of the fruit and ate it and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves then the man and the woman heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden but the Lord God called to the man where are you and he answered I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked so I hid then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from God because they realized they were naked father I just pray that you will just bring in an anointing the words of my lips that you will speak revelatory truth to each and every one of us that are assembled here this morning I ask you Lord to guide my thoughts so that they are reflective of the thoughts that you have and my words so that they are the words that you would speak to these people I thank you Lord for who you are what you've done we praise you and we exalt you and we bless you but this morning as I speak to the congregation let this be a time of reflection understanding so that we might come into a greater knowledge of who you are and what you want to do for us through your spirit in our lives. I bless you, O oh Lord, and I bless this word that we're about to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. I read a narrative to you that everyone here is familiar with. It's a narrative of the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. And there is so much that we can go into in that narrative. So many twists and turns and, and we, we could spend 
months, if not a year, just taking apart each verse, each word in the verse. But this morning, I want to focus on a question that I have for you as it relates to the incidents that took place in the garden. How many of you here are saved? Okay. Now, that wasn't my question, because I obviously thought I'd get a positive response. But this is the question I want to ask you this morning. What are you saved from? Oh, I know the stock answer. Some will say, uh, I'm saved from sin. Okay. Or, I'm saved from eternal judgment. These are true. But they are the after effects of what salvation really means. You see, the word saved is one that we have coined ourselves regarding salvation. But if we really want to understand the dynamics of what has taken place at Calvary and what happened here in the garden, it isn't that we are saved. Rather than we are restored. That's right. We are restored. And when we talk about restoration, the first thing that comes to our theological minds, we learned it in Bible Sunday school, we are restored to right relationship with God. The truth, right? But let me take it a little bit further this morning. Let me show you something maybe, I, I don't know about you, I, I just understood that last night, this morning. And I think I'm right in this. So let me blurt it out and then let's see if we can, you know, reconcile this to the way we theologically think. See, we're not just saved to right standing with God. But we are also restored to a right standing with our humanity. See, the problem in the world yes. is sin. That's the cause. But the effect is that it has destroyed our humanity. Thank you, Joseph. Let's go back to the beginning. All right? I know here we're in chapter 3, but... Let's go back a couple of chapters and let's look at the process 
that God used in order to bring the earth, the universe, everything into existence. And let's not go through all you know the celestial and cosmic uh, events. Let's just get right down to where we live when he created man. All right? The word of God says it took up a handful of dirt. And science has proven, by the way, that's really what we are. You know, a handful of dirt and yeah. a lot of liquid. And that's why when we die, we disintegrate. And this thing that we call me is really not me. It's really a container for me. It's a receptacle for who I am. See, me is not out here. Me is in here. That's me. All right? The real me. See, when God fashioned the form of the man out of the dirt of the land, he then used it as a receptacle, a repository, a container to put something in it. And what he put in it his breath. Now, let me tell you something. That is a key word. Breath. Rog. 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 That's the Hebrew for breath. R O R U A C H, if you want phonetically pronounce it. God, breathe into man. You see, our existence isn't a matter of creation. Our existence is a matter of impartation. We weren't created by God as individual beings. He imparted a part of himself into us so that in him we are a collective body. Christ in us, us in Christ. So I know we often use that word, man, yeah, God created man. No, God created the physical entity of man. He didn't create man who man really is. That comes by impartation. And it comes by the, what word did I say was important? Breath, by the breath. Now, let's go stay in the garden a little bit, and let's examine a couple of things. First of all, what was God's pronunciation over creation and all that he'd done? Every day that he created some of the things, he said what? It's good, it's good, it's good. Time after time, God puts the stars in. It's good. You know, it's good. It's good. 
Come to the sixth day. And that's not necessarily true because it was a collective, even though each thing was made singly because woman was there, whether she was physically there or not physically there, she was there in God's mind and God's understanding. And then God had him side. <laughs> but on, upon the completion of his impartation into this vessel of dirt, God now gets up and says, wow. Wow. This is not only good. It's like my spaghetti sauce. <laughs> it's not just good. Mm, mamma mia, that's a very good. Bellissimo. Wonderful. What changed God's description from good to very good? Man. Man. And why was God so excited about this? Where's Angela? Oh, she's, oh, and it's a shame. Uh, nobody else, none of and my grandkids will do. No. I was going to use Angela. How many saw that picture of Angela in that beard and makeup in that, uh, when we were doing Wise Guys and Starry Skies, and she had that beard with the silver streaks down and big eyebrows, and there was, she looks just like her dad. And well, even without the beard, <laughs> she still looks like her dad. You know, she's my daughter. I see pictures of my son Anthony, and sometimes I think, oh, yeah, that's the one I'm talking about. So when I look, or you look at your children, you got a granddaughter. Who did she like? Anybody know that Marianne, Pastor Marianne, has a granddaughter? Yeah. Nobody knows. I don't, do you really? <laughs> look at, oh, look at this. Look, yeah, yeah, she's got a granddaughter, right? Hey, Ron, by the time it gets to where you and I are, you know, oh, another one. Okay, cool. Now, that never happens, does it? Every one of them is as precious as the other. What'd you say? She, what'd you say? Come on, say it out loud. That makes you feel good, doesn't it? Yes, it does. So when, so when God finished fashioning a pile of dirt, and then he imparted his spirit, he probably said the same thing that you said. Wow. He looks just like me. Boy, you're my spitting image. You're my spitting image. I want you to understand this. In God's process, 
of bringing us into existence. It was a process that was perfect. It was perfection in every aspect of everything that he did. We were created perfectly. Not just that we were made perfectly. We are perfect. Why? Because the essence of our being is the same essence as God's being. We are created in his image and with the opportunity to develop his likeness. See, image and likeness are two different aspects. And theologians for millenniums have struggled with the difference, but it's very simple. And I don't know why somebody didn't get this before I saw it. Image is what we look like. Likeness is the way we act. Your kids can look like you, but they don't necessarily have to act like you. And even when you get kids that don't look like the father very much, or the parents, <laughs> take Susan, for example. She looks like me. <laughs> she may look like my wife, but you know what? In so many things, she acts just like me. So, God created us not only to bear his image, but to also bear his likeness. So, when he created the perfection of the universe, he put into everything that exists laws and principles. And they were perfectly balanced. Science today is still amazed at... at how tenuous the universe is it, with the smallest variation. I mean, just microcosms. Small, you know, Joey, you know that you're probably smarter in this than, than, than anybody else in this room right now. Joey's got that brain for all these things. I mean, the smallest variation, infinitesimal. My English teacher is helping me at a moment. What is it? Oh, I guess there's a T in there. If you're from New York, there's a T in it. The smallest little thing, and and everything is 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 that way. And. One variable, and it couldn't possibly exist. So God created everything perfectly. He put all of his laws in, in, in perfect balance. And with man, he did more than give him laws. You see, this is where we get messed up as Christians. We think, being a Christian means obeying the law. If I obey the law, I'm a Christian. <laughs> no. 
The laws were put there for our purposes. It is a guide not to be pleasing to God so that, or so that God doesn't get angry. I, I want to stop here right, just a second. First of all, forget about the notion that God is an angry God. Who is it, George Whitefield? Who preached the, the, you know, one of the great awakenings in, the, in American history. And his celebrated sermon was, what was it? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. And there was a nationwide revival. But I want to tell you something. That was not, that's not the God that I serve. I mean, and I'm not here to scare anybody into salvation. Because that is only a temporary fix. And that's why it's just generational. Salvation, you're not being saved from the judgment of an angry God. God is not angry at us. Get this straight, right? And I don't care what you've done out there. I don't care who the rankest sinner is out there. God is not angry. God loves them. God loves us. God so loved. And guess what the world was filled with when he loved them? That's right. Just like you and me. And see, you see, sin is not the problem. Sin is just the consequence of our disobedience. Because what we did, we broke covenant with God. When God created man, he realized that that creation, that was that impartation that was within him, needed to be acclimated to its existence, just as a child needs to be acclimated to his or hers existence. A child comes into the world and has all the potential of adulthood and maturity. All the potential of, of the giftings that are embedded someplace in that child's spirit. But that child needs to go through a process where it understands all the variables of life and comes into a knowledge of what is appropriate and what isn't appropriate. That's what we do as parents. We train up our children. So that they know the difference. God placed a tree in the center of the garden. And it was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But he says, don't eat. But that prohibition wasn't eternal. It was a temporary prohibition. Because when we get into glory, we're going to know him even as he is known. We're going to have our... But the prohibition was there simply because of this. We were not ready. We couldn't yet discern 
the difference between what is good and bad. And left to ourselves. See, this is the problem in our society today. There is no good or bad, except if you're a Christian. Then obviously we're bad because we're trying to influence other people to be like us. But the, it's good or bad. So when God prohibited man from participating in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it was not a perpetual prohibition. It was one that was contained within a process. What, when we just read for you in chapter 3, we read about the sin, the failure, the disobedience, the fall of Adam. But, and, and most people focus on that. But I want you to look at, it begins in verse 8. After the man and the woman had now come to a conclusion. Oh, I started saying about the society, what is good and bad. Today's society, it's, it's do what is good to you. called the Rogerian philosophy of life. You know, there's no right or wrong. But the fact is, there is right and wrong. There, because actions, attitudes, have consequences. We were created that way. We were created to follow a set of divine principles, not so that God would be appeased, but so that we would reach the fullness of our purpose for our existence. There was only one requirement that God had for man, and that requirement, obedience. What does that mean? Just trust me until you gain the knowledge that I've given to you. So now let's go back to that, that portion I was talking about in Genesis chapter 3. Verse 7, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from him. What does that mean? When, when you read those words in English, what comes into your mind? Well, Adam and Eve, are, they recognize that they, see, they gained the knowledge. They knew they were naked. But, you know, ever ask yourself the question, why was the knowledge of their nakedness something that they feared when they were naked before? 
because they were now interpreting what good and evil was according to their standards. But they hear God walking towards them. They hear the sound of God. What does God sound like? What does God sound And what is the cool of the day? Does that mean the best part? It's a cool part. It is cool. Man, it's cool. The writer of Genesis Hippie, man, it's cool. Well, here's where it's important that we just don't look at the English words of our text and we start going into a deeper analysis and understanding of the original languages. Now, you don't have to be a Hebrew scholar. I mean, there's so many things that you can do that will give you a clarification. But when you look up these words, you find that the word cool of the day. Remember what I said? The word breath is? What was it? Rock. The cool of the day in Hebrew is the rock. In other words, the sound they heard was the sound of a mighty rushing wind. Rock, the cool of the day. See, what they heard was God speaking to them in the breeze, in the wind. And have you ever noticed, whenever we have a visitation of God, specifically in the Old Testament, there's always sights and sounds accompanying with it. There's flashings and there's lightnings. And there's winds, tornadoes. And let's go to the upper room in the New Testament. What happens? They were there praising God and all of a sudden, the sound of a mighty rushing wind came and filled the house. And they all were filled with the Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. What happened when Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit? That action knocked the breath out of Adam and Eve. Knocked out their spirit. And now they took on their own identity. Their own nature. Instead of living in the nature and likeness of God. They became in the nature and likeness of human flesh. When Adam procreated his children. The Bible says Adam was created in the image of God, but Adam's children were created in the image of Adam. Yes. The spirit was knocked out of him. Now he's left to his own devices. 
but he has no guidance. It's like being in an airplane during a terrible storm, and all of a sudden, your guidance system goes out of whack. They say that when you're in the clouds, and I've had this experience in a private aircraft that I flew in several times with a friend of mine, and you get in the clouds, there is no sense of up and down. None. I mean, it is amazing. You don't know if you're turning. You don't know if you're going straight. You, you don't know if you're upside down. You don't know if, I mean, that's why it's so dangerous. That's why you have to look at the altimeter or altimeter or whatever it is. The altimeter, right? Altimeter. What? Altimeter. Well, you know what it is. And you're going to look at it. And you're going to, you know, tells you where, you know, how the wings are. But if that's all of a sudden gone, you're in big trouble. And that's what's happened to us, to mankind. We are stuck in the clouds someplace, but we have no guidance system. Because that guidance system that God put within us, his principles, his laws, we have taken it out. We're now dependent upon our own experiences, our own perceptions as to which way to go. And that's why humanity seems to be and doesn't even know it. So, sin, let me see how I want to phrase this. Most of us were brought up to believe that when you sin, God gets mad at us. So we have to appease him. Some way or the other, either through penance or by giving offerings or a commitment to a monastic or ascetic type of lifestyle. You would think if we deny the flesh, beat the flesh up, that, that some way or the other we are going to appropriate God's blessings in our lives. And God's angry. We have to appeal. I said this before, let me say it again. God never gets angry with us. It doesn't mean he doesn't bring correction. Because whom the Father loves, he corrects. It's the parent that doesn't bring correction that doesn't love the child. Because God didn't want us to go in our own way. Because we don't know how to navigate through this fog called life. He gives us a guidance. And when we, when we go contrary to the laws and the principles of this guidance system, God doesn't get angry. He gets concerned. Because he created us to be perfect. He created us with everything necessary. To be like him. He created us 
so that our ultimate destiny, according to Peter, was that we might partake in his divine nature. But when we have lost the guidance system and we don't know where we're at, God is concerned. And he'll do everything he can within his power without violating this right of self-determination that we possess because that was necessary in order for us to love him. He won't violate our right of self-determination, but he's there helping us, guiding us, putting situations in our path that will point back to him, but we sometimes you, you just don't, don't recognize them. You, you, you don't want them. Sometimes we think that the problems we're going through are, are cursing, and yet, really what they are, they're just roadblocks that God says, would you please stop here and start thinking about me? I want to put your guidance system back on. Why? So you can safely arrive at your destination. So just let me get to the end here. So what does it mean to be saved? It means that our guidance system is back working and operating. Come on. That's real good. Yeah. That's real good. And that sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and Adam was fearful because it no longer reflected his nature, God's nature, that sound, that wind, that breath that was knocked out of Adam was once again breathed into Adam when the Holy Ghost came and filled that house. Just breathe it in. Breathe it in. Let God's spirit fill you. That's why it's called recreation. Because what we lost was the way. What we lost was the truth. What we lost was the life. What we lost was the light. So, <clears throat> salvation, Christianity, isn't so much about religion. Religion is just supposed to be a marker, a pointer, a sign that says this way, that way. Some markers are accurate, some got twisted in the wind. So it's not religion that makes us Christians. It is 
the reinstallation of God's guidance system for our lives. And we are, God doesn't prohibit us from doing things because he wants to be tyrannical. He cautions us about activities that he knows will bring hurt, heartache, pain into your life. He knows that unless you follow the principles that he created for our good, we would live a life of frustration, consternation. Wishing that things were different and getting depressed when they aren't and wondering what in the world can I do? You can't do anything until you get that guidance system back online. So when we preach the gospel, we're not preaching about a religion. We're preaching about a way. And not just a way. We're preaching about the way. Amen. You can accept it or you can reject it. It's up to you. If you like the direction that your life is going in, then keep flying your plane without your guidance system. See where you end up. Or you can come to the way, the truth, and the life. You can find your way by finding the way. And you'll know that you're on the way when your life now, regardless of the circumstances, is filled with a peace and a joy. contentment a love a sincere desire to benefit others rather than seeking for benefit of yourself that's when you know you're on the way and rather than get fearful when we hear the sound of the Lord walking in our gardens in the cool of the day instead of hiding behind our own self-righteousness the fig leaves that we made we come out and say hi dad here I am just the way you made me and that brings pleasure to God our sin God hates not because it violates him, but because it comes against the purpose of our humanity. It violates us. When we sin, we don't sin against God. We sin against our humanity. We're bringing this body into a place that God never intended it to go. But he gave us the right of choice. Because without that, you can't love. 
If you don't have the opportunity or the choice not to love, you'll never experience the wonders of love. Love is a choice. So when we tell you these rules, sometimes we as men, preachers, teachers, we beat you over the head with them. As if, you know, man, you're terrible for doing this. You're ter it's not that you're terrible. It's just that you're doing something bad to yourself. And I don't want that to happen to you. And you don't know what is right and what is wrong. You just think you know. Based on what others have told you. But we have the right. We have the responsibility to say right and wrong. Why? Because the way came and showed us. That's right. Other people try to tell the world, you do this this way, that way, that way, and you know, everybody else. But you know what? There's only one person who showed us the way that demonstrated beyond any doubt that he was right because there's only one great teacher in all of humanity that died and came back. The resurrection. See, there was no need for a resurrection if all we were doing is dealing with the judgment of sin because the judgment of sin was dealt with on Calvary. But the need for the resurrection was to prove to you and me that he is the way. And now, I, first of all, I, I, I choose, okay, all right, I'm going to try it your way. That's what the sinner's prayer is all about. I'm going to try it your way. But you know what? Once you do, guess what? You'll like that way. Same things are happening to you now as they did then. But I see things differently. There's nothing bad that can happen to me. Why? Because God loves me? Yes. Because he's made everything possible for us to live to the perfection of the humanity that he created within us. Hey. That's what I'm doing here. I'm trying to make you converts to a religion, members of a church. I'm here because I found the way. You know, there's something peculiar about humanity. We try to impose upon people two things. One, and there's a commercial, I think it's a Geico commercial, with the raccoons on the, uh, in the garbage dump. 
and the one raccoon is giving somebody else to say, oh, it's terrible, it's terrible, terrible. And, and you know, I do that to my wife all the time. You know, oh, is it here? Take, no, we don't want to take it. Come on, taste it. We want them to share in our distaste. That's part of the, you know, here's a cigarette. Here's some drugs. Here's some this, here's some that. I know, I did it. So that's one aspect of our humanity. We want to share that which has been bad to us. But the other aspect, the other side of the coin is this. We have an equal compulsion that when there's something good, we want to share that. Here, Mama, try, the, try this tripe. It is wonderful. Come on. Here, tripe. Mama, come on, just stay. I, I, I guess this is one of the ways I trained Susan. When she was a young girl, you know, she had somewhat of a small palate. And, you know, but every once in a while she would try it and she'd go, when she tastes food she likes, there's no hiding it. Her eyes get as big as saucers, her mouth gets as big, and she This is the one. Yeah, so she, she rocks when she's eating something good. But I, you love sharing. This is good. And you see, with this new nature that I have, I don't want to share that which was bad. I want to share with you that which is good. I want you to share it with the people out there. This is good. This isn't religion. This isn't about denying yourself anything except pain and frustration and depression. I've got to come, I've come to the realization no matter what this flesh, no matter what this mind is going through, it's good because I'm back in that garden. And God comes by to walk with me, to talk with me, to train me in his ways so that when I see him, I will be like him. How do you understand what it means to be saved? It means more than just having your escape card from hell. It means having access to all the benefits that God has placed at our disposal so that we can have life and the way Jesus described it when he said, I've come that you might have life. He wasn't satisfied just giving us existence. He says, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundant. That's what it's about. 
And once it's in us, the reality of it and our experience of it, we have to tell others. We have to share it. I can't keep it to myself. But it's like, again, the analogy of my sauce, and I'll stop talking about it someday. Sauce is sauce. What makes a good sauce is the expert knowledge of the ingredients to put into it and the tenderness and care. Yeah. I love over my sauce. And it comes out good. God does the same thing with us. He gives us the right ingredients. He says, here, put this in. He gives us the right methodology. Here, do it this way. And then he's always there, right by your side, making sure you do it the way he prescribed. Not for his benefit. Jesus loves me. This I know. Do you hear me? Greg, do you hear me? Do you hear the Spirit speaking to your spirit? He loves you. Regardless of the circumstance, regardless of your feeling, regardless of your attitude. He loves you. And all he wants for you is to have a better life. Not to become a religious fanatic. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity I've had to share with these, your people, the lambs that you put into this pasture. Those that you've told us to lead, to shepherd, to bring them to green grass and still waters. Lord, I pray that we will understand what the Word of God is all about. I pray that we will understand your character, your nature. And recognize that you are a God of love. And the only reason you hate sin is because it takes away from our fulfillment in life, our joy in life that you've created us to participate in. I thank you, Lord. Thank you for this privilege of sharing this word with this congregation. Amen. Before I sit down, I just felt prompted by the Spirit to engage you in an activity. What I would like for you to do as a sign of
of your desire to learn from God. I'm going to ask you to just stand to your feet. And you're saying, you know what? I want to find the way. Even if you've, found, even if you've been in church for a thousand years, it's about the way. And I'd like to invite you to just come up here with me. Just come on up. We're not going to get all spooky on you. We just want to join in celebration as a family. Victoria, just forget about the rest of that. <laughs>